Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Little boy built a model ship. He glued all the pieces together and worked on it for hours. It was perfect. Every detail was correct down to the tiny sailor standing on the deck of the ship. He put it in a glass case and he wouldn't let his brother play with it in the bathtub. He was going to keep it perfect and safe forever. His parents, however, bought a real boat boat later on so that they could spend the weekends sailing out in the harbor. And they loved it at first. It was a lot of work to maintain. Boat owners will tell you that the day you bought your boat is the happiest day of your life, and the day you sold it is the second happiest day. (laughs) At first, they used it a lot, especially that first summer. But then they used it a little bit less as each successive summer came along. And after a few months, um, one year, they went to spend a day sailing and they found barnacles growing on the side and algae all over. And there was a dead motor. They couldn't even get it out into the harbor to sail. See, a real boat is only kept in shape by being used. The two boats worked in opposite ways. The little model boat kept in a glass case was preserved by keeping it safe. And the real boat was preserved by being used. But what good is a toy boat except in a glass case, except to be admired occasionally? And and what good's a real boat if kept docked and unused except to gather barnacles and algae, algae and slowly deteriorate over time? See, this morning, as we come to the weekend after Easter, the question is, what good is faith in Christ who died on a cross and rose from the grave if not to impart to us work that is still yet to be done? We come to church, which is actually not a truth statement. Church isn't a place you go. Church is the people of God. God doesn't dwell in buildings made by man anymore. He dwells within the hearts and the lives of those who are called by his name, those who have surrendered their lives to him. And so the body of Christ is the church, and wherever the church goes, there Christ is as well. The Holy Spirit indwells the people of God and not inanimate objects. We are to be holy as he is holy. And we have been called to go as he came to us with the good news. Today I want to talk to you about the great commission and the ascension of Jesus because the two go hand in hand together. In Matthew 28, we pick up the story just after, uh, well actually about the time the tomb is empty. Uh, We talked about that last week. We're going to look at Matthew's perspective on this today, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. And yes, it's a whole chapter, but it's only 20 verses long, so stick in there with me. It says in Matthew 28, starting with verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. It reads like this, early on Sunday morning, this is Easter Sunday morning they're talking about. As a new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was an earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven, and he rolled aside the stone and sat on it. I get this picture of this, you know, this like a perched on a, on a stone, right? That's what I get the picture of. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook in fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Have you ever uh, passed out before? You don't have to raise your hand. If you've ever passed out before, it's like a dead faint. Uh, you, You are completely out cold. 
I don't know if, if, if you've ever experienced that, but if you would seen something like these soldiers had seen, they felt the earth rumble underneath their feet. The only time I've ever experienced that was in Guatemala several years ago, and uh, we were on a missions trip, and you could see volcanoes out in the distance. And so there's obviously a lot of seismic activity in a region like that. And we're sitting out in the morning. I think, uh, Butch Groover, are you still? Yeah. Were you there with me? Yeah, we thought somebody had fallen out of bed, right? But, uh, but we, were, we were sitting there early in the morning on the patio getting ready to eat breakfast. And things started to shift. It's really disconcerting if you've never experienced that before. It's very unsettling. Uh, it, it causes you to feel not just out of control, but utterly out of control. The, the canopy of the porch shifting. And you realize something, you just don't realize what's happening. Sitting there, you're like, something, I've never, what is, what's going on? How can concrete shift and move like this? Now imagine you're there at the tomb. And the earth begins to quake and shake. Again, it's typical for that region. There'd been earthquakes there before. But there hadn't been anything quite like this. When the earth quaked and the stone rolled away, which is kind of a monumental test, not impossible, but it had been sealed shut by Caesar, remember? It had been reinforced. But now the earth is shaken and the stone rolls away. And now you have this being, this angelic being, radiant, says that his face shone like lightning. Have you ever seen lightning? I'd be surprised if you hadn't. Now imagine looking at somebody's face and it looked like lightning. Would you be a little upset would you would you be like oh come here give us a little hug how would you feel if you saw that thinking of elf and the raccoon in the movie you remember that oh you just want to hug what would you do well it says they panicked to the point to where they were so awestruck that they passed out in fear and then the angel spoke to the women who had, at this point, come upon the scene. And what does he tell them to do? Don't be afraid. We didn't hear him say that to the Roman soldiers. Did you notice that? Because they should have been afraid. But the ladies shouldn't have been. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, he said. I know that you're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. Well, he isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come and see where his body was laying. And so they come inside the tomb, and they look. And there on that slab, as one of our other gospel writers explains, are the linen wrappings that held the body of Christ still in place, laid out as if the body had evaporated through the fabric. And the head cloth that covered the head was wrapped or folded and laying to the side. Look where he was laying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. Now where was Jesus' tomb? Jerusalem, or just outside of Jerusalem. Some people believe it was in the garden tomb that is in this place or hillside called the Mount of Olives, and you can go there today and look at it. There's, it's assumed there's another tomb as well. Scholars aren't really sure exactly where it is, but uh, there are shrines at a couple locations that conceivably his tomb would have been. And where does he tell them to go? So Jerusalem, if you look on it in the map, because they're still there, the, the, the cities are. Jerusalem is close to the Dead Sea, about to the bottom of where the Jordan River dumps into the Dead Sea. At the north region or northern end of the Jordan River is a place called the Sea of Galilee. This is a place where Jesus called four of the disciples who were fishing, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. 
This is the place where Jesus walked on the water. So there, the risen Christ has risen from the grave in, from that tomb in Jerusalem. He tells the women to go and tell the disciples to meet him where? Just north in Galilee, where his ministry with them first began. Let's go back to where it all started because this is so vitally important. I want you to catch the picture of what Jesus is telling them. He could have commissioned them in Jerusalem, but he takes them back to the place where he called them into the ministry with him. Because just as he called them there, he's going to send them there. Powerful imagery. The women, verse 8, quickly ran from the tomb. They were frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. By now, the guards had woken up. And they realized that they weren't just imagining what had happened. It wasn't just a dream that the tomb was open, the body was gone, and that the vision or what they experienced was actually a real occurrence. And so now they go back into Jerusalem because they know their heads are going to be on a platter. They were to guard the tomb. Their one responsibility they failed at. Of course, when you come up against God as an adversary, you can't assume to win anything. But if you come alongside of him as Savior, all things are possible. And so, they go into town, and now the word spreads among the other guards that the body's gone, this vision of this angel and an earthquake happened They can't deny it. And so a meeting with the elders was called. Who are the elders? These are the elders of the Jewish community. Those religious leaders that actually had worked to see Jesus crucified. Had sold him off. So to speak. So a meeting with these elders was called. And they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. And if the governor hears about it, who's the governor? Pontius Pilate. If he hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get in trouble. What kind of leverage did the elders of the community of the Jewish faith have with the Roman leaders of that area? Well, because that was the central area and location of Jewish worship and politics, they had a lot of pool with the Roman government officials in that region. Because the Roman government officials, like Pontius Pilate, were there to keep the peace by force if necessary. But the Jewish leaders knew that their people would make an uprising if necessary. It had happened a few hundred years before with the Maccabees. They knew that these Jewish people were not controllable. So if I can keep the peace, then so be it. So now the elders are saying to the Roman soldiers, especially to the two that were supposed to have kept the tomb secure, we'll keep your life safe. Don't worry about it. We've got some pool with the governor. Here's some money. Just say they stole his body. Do you find something interesting about that? The elders are professing that seemingly what the Roman soldiers are saying is true, and so now they're concocting a lie. How evil must you be or how deceived must you be to perpetuate perpetuate a lie knowing it's false or perpetuate, perpetuate a lie against the truth when you know the difference? Do you understand what I'm asking? Okay, you say this happened, and more than likely it probably did, but don't tell that message to anybody else. Here is a large chunk of money. 
Tell them the disciples came in the night and stole the body. Now, how silly would that be? These tacticians, these armor bearers, not just armor bearers, these soldiers, these warriors who had the best of the best battle armament of the day were overtaken by a band of 12 followers, actually 11 at this time because Judas had already gone off somewhere else. Does it seem logical? No, because it's not. Lies usually aren't logical. Falsehoods are full of holes. They may seem convincing on the surface, but when you actually dig into a falsehood, you realize how pitted it really is. You must say the disciples came in the night while they were sleeping and stole the body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get into trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Now, this was written about, let's see, Matthew's gospel would have probably been written 50 or 60 A.D. So this is about 20 to 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so about two to three decades later, this was the message that was still being propagated among the Jews and the Romans at the time. Verse 16, the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. One of our other gospel writers tells us about the doubt from Thomas. And he says, come here, Thomas. Just so you can see this really me, put your hand in the nail prints. And here, check out my side. Put your finger here. It's me. And what does Thomas do? He falls at the Lord's feet, crying, my Lord and my God. Jesus came to his disciples and said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you to the very end of the age. What is the end of the age? Well, they actually calculated time in ages. So the age of Noah, the age of Moses. What is the end of the age? age. It's the age of the living Christ who is risen from the grave. And the end of the age will be ushered into conclusion at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling them, I am definitely who I said I was. I now have the authority that I had before, but now in confirming that this is what I have, not just in heaven, but on earth. He's saying something so significant. The enemy of the world or the prince of this world is Satan. He's allowed to have somewhat of a dominion over the world right now. But now Jesus, who's conquered sin and death through the cross and the empty tomb, says, now I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That is a powerful statement. I, because of what I have done, I am now the Lord of all. There is no other God but me. And of course, that was the case to begin with, but he confirms it in his risen state to the disciples. And then what does he tell them to do? Because I have been given this authority, I'm entrusting it to you. How are we doing with the authority of Christ as the body of Christ? That can be a very telling statement. Because he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. I've not departed. How was he with us to the end of the age? Well, he tells them to go on into Galilee. They receive this commission. And then he says, wait, I'm going to send a helper. And the helper that comes on the day of Pentecost, which we read about in Acts chapter 1 and 2, is the Holy Spirit. The one who would empower believers in the Old Testament for a time, but would not always stick around. 
the one who would imbue them with a sense of prophecy and authority. Now, Jesus is saying this helper that's coming, this paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will infill you and will be in you to guide you and direct you. I will be with you always to even the end of the age. And we move on to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Luke picks up the story from there, and he says, After saying this, he, Jesus, was taken up in a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven... Imagine, have you, we, my wife and I lived in Florida for a while, about nine years actually. We met at college down there in um, Cape Canaveral where NASA shoots off its shuttles and, well, no shuttles anymore, but its rockets. When we were there, the shuttles hadn't been decommissioned. There were a couple occasions where being two hours away in the middle of the state, we could see the rockets as they would lift off from two hours away. And you would watch them. Night sky uh, liftoffs were the best because it's this huge fireball, even two hours away, rising in the sky. It's this awesome sight. Now, I've never been there and felt the rumble of the ground and to hear the roar of the rocket engines, but to see it even from that far away and to watch. And you strain to watch it until it's just this tiny pinprick of light in the sky. An awesome sight to see. So imagine these disciples are watching Jesus who is now being lifted up and ascending into the clouds. And they're straining to see like you let a balloon go and you watch it as far as it can go. And while they're straining, I love this. This is like stuff of sitcoms, right? Everybody's looking like this, and somebody ends up standing beside them like, oh, where'd you come from? So that's what happens. As they strained to see him rising to heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee. And they go, ah! Like that. They kind of get freaked out a little bit, I'm sure. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. All right, so how do we unpack this very quickly today? And I mean quickly. We'll unpack this this way. The first point, or the key point, if you fall asleep after this, or if you've already fallen asleep, wake up, and then you can go back to sleep if you want to, is this. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the church is empowered and commanded to preach the good news to everyone. Let's unpack that. So I said Jesus holds all authority in heaven and on earth. Biblical scholar Michael Green writes this, the authority of Jesus is a major theme in Matthew's gospel. Jesus appears on the scene as a teacher who has authority in Matthew chapter 7. The miracles in chapter 8 onwards denote his authority not simply in word but in deed. So he's affirming and confirming his authority all the way throughout his ministry. And in chapter 10, he imparted that authority of his, temp- of his temporarily of this temporarily to his apostles, and they went out on their mission. It was a trial run what awaited them after his death. So he sends them out two by two. Do you remember? So while Jesus was still on the earth, still with his disciples, before the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, he finally has empowered them, given them. He says, I give you all authority. And he says, I want you to go out. Again, It was almost like a probationary period thing. Let's give this a trial run. Why don't you kick kick the tires a bit on this and see how you feel about it. And you know what their testimony was when they came back? They came back from being sent out two by two, and they're like, it was amazing. People were healed. We saw demons cast out of people. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. <laughs> he wasn't that nonchalant about it. But you get the idea. He knew by imbuing them with his authority, there's nothing they wouldn't be able to accomplish. Amen. So now in the Great Commission, 
He reminds them, all authority in heaven and on earth now has been given to me. Yeah, I have the authority from heaven, but I now have authority over all the earth because I've conquered what had control of the earth. I have the answer and the solution to the problem because I've fixed the problem. So now, having been given that authority, I'm sending you again. They had to have had echoes of that first sending when he sent them out into the trial run to realize now this is the real deal. He's given them that authority. He's given us that authority. Here now, 2,000 years later, that great commission still stands as a testament of his authority, and yet I think the church is failing at least in our culture, in its mission. Not totally. I don't want to use that as a blanket statement. There are pockets of believers in the United States that are on fire for God. They hold the line of truth, and they speak the truth in love. They aren't going and beating people over the head with the Bible. Instead, they are being the embodiment of Christ wherever they go, the hands and feet of Christ. They are the embodiment of love, who we know God to actually be, according to 1 John. They aren't the embodiment of evil. They are the embodiment of reason. They are the embodiment of hope. They are the embodiment of forgiveness. And yes, they're the embodiment of correction when it's needed and necessary. They are not the embodiment of compromise, but the embodiment of truth pointing to the one who is truth. But the church is fearful today in our culture. We have so gotten sucked into this mentality that we have to make everybody happy. And if anybody knows this better than anyone else, it's me. I hate it when people are upset with me. And I remember early on in ministry realizing that I'm not going to make everybody happy, even if I'm really trying hard to make people happy. Do I compromise the truth of the word of God in order to make people feel okay? Or do I speak the truth in love, knowing that the truth that goes forth from this mouth, from the word of God, may be offensive to some because of what it says? See, the church today in our culture has lost its moorings, its anchor. We don't know what we're tied to anymore except the whims and the whimsies of a culture that's adrift in a sea of turbulence. And this is not a popular message today in our culture. I wish it were. It's just, it's just not. And because it's not a popular message, the church Let me, dare I say, the traditional church that holds traditional values has been earmarked as any number of phobias that you can imagine or hate-filled sentiments and statements. And yes, that can be reserved for some quack groups that aren't teaching the truth of the word. Like, dare I say, the Westboro Baptist Church. If, there, if there's anyone out there that goes and pickets at gravesides of our military professionals and, and, and yells hateful rhetoric, that is not of the Lord. That is a false teaching that has crept into some parts of the church. It is not a testimony of the risen Lord, but is a testimony of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But it still doesn't mean it still doesn't mean that the truth we preach is wrong. It's not popular, especially for those that don't live in the truth, but rather live in their version of what they want the truth to be. And then whenever you preach the truth from God's word, it is offensive. I had this conversation this morning. I can't remember uh, who it was with. Uh, Anyway, I'll, I'll talk about it later. But here's the thing. Is is it offensive because it's true? And if it's offensive because of what's true, then it's called conviction. If it's offensive because it's not true, it's called a righteous anger against untruths. 
So why do people get offended when they hear the word of God? A lot of times because it convicts. And if a conviction of the Holy Spirit drives you to repentance, then that's its point and what it should be doing. So what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is simply this, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. Quickly, what does it mean to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach? Well, a disciple is just the English word for the Greek word methetes. And methetes in Greek actually means a student or a learner, somebody who's learning or is a student of somebody else. Who are we to make disciples of? Jesus. I see too many pastors making disciples of themselves. There are too many church leaders making disciples of themselves. You don't have to look anywhere except on the news channels or in discovery at the hill songs of our day and age to see that personalities of ministers can oftentimes become so convoluted and bloated that they make disciples of themselves. Actually, this isn't anything new. If you read Matthew 23, who does Jesus call a brood of vipers? The religious leaders. And he says, you go over mountain and hill into great lengths to make disciples, and yet you make them twice the devil as hell, of hell as you are. That's what Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day. Because they were pointing to themselves rather than to the one who sent them. See, I believe if ministers of the gospel are pointing people to Jesus, if that minister stumbles and falls along the way because the people are keeping their eyes fixed on Christ, they're not going to stumble and walk away. Don't get me wrong. The church is not perfect, never has been, and honestly never will be this side of heaven. You can point at any number of people who proclaim a belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, and you can say, well, I know what they've done in the past, and I know some of the things they say or some of the ways they act, and you would be completely right in assuming and saying that. But where are your eyes fixed? This is the point, isn't it, of the gospel? The reason it's good news is because it's not about us. It's always been about him and what he did for us. When our eyes are fixed on Christ, we rise above the muck and the mire of this world. Even when those like the Ravi Zacharias's or the Mark Driscoll's of our day and age stumble and fall along the way with our eyes fixed on Christ, we are able to withstand and overcome the frustration and the disappointment of the one that we held so much hope in. But there is one who is perfect and who proved who he was and whom all authority has been given. We are to baptize. Why is that important? Is baptism something that gets you into heaven? No, it's not. I know that feels weird to say and maybe weird to hear, but we do know that you can die without having been physically baptized in water and go to heaven. How do we know that? We know Jesus told the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. They didn't take him down, baptize him, and then put him back up there. Okay? Well, you say that's an extenuating circumstance. He made an exception to the rule. We don't read anything about exceptions to rules. We just hear Jesus giving a promise to a repentant man who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was enough. So why is baptism important? Why, why do we do it if you don't need it to get into heaven? Because it is a representation of your life dying to self and being raised to new life in Jesus Christ. It's a mandate that he gave us to do as a gesture, not more, and not just a gesture, but as, as a testimony of who we are and whose we are. It is meant to be done in the public eye and not merely behind closed doors. You see, what baptism is, is a representation of who we are in Christ. It's a public profession of that faith 
to the community of faith. And as I tell potential candidates for baptism whenever they're getting ready to be baptized back here, I I remind them, your faith is not private. I I hear that all the time. What do you believe? Uh, That's private. That's just about me. That's private. No, it's not. That's a lie from the enemy. See, baptism is a public profession of faith because you are becoming or, or telling people you have become a part of the body of Christ, which means you now open yourself up to encouragement, to rebuke, to discipline if necessary. And, and that doesn't, that's, again, that's not a popular thing to say. So when another believer in Christ sees you erring in your ways or doing things that aren't up to the standard of God's followers, and they pull you aside and say, listen, I'm seeing this in your life, and it's not healthy. It's actually destructive, and it's not only going to ruin you, it may ruin those around you. You need to confess this and repent of it and move beyond it. The typical response, especially in a culture like ours, is not repentance, but a stiff arm. Don't you judge me. Becoming a part of the body of Christ in a public way means I'm a part of something bigger than myself. It's not about me. I'm opening myself up. I'm opening myself up to transparency. I'm opening myself up to people encouraging me, teaching me, constructively criticizing things that aren't right in my life. And yes, even pastors should be open to that. The ones that aren't, be careful because they're dangerous. And teaching, teaching, teaching what? My truth, what I feel is right. What does Jesus tell them to teach? Oh, let me go back to baptism real quick. Who does he say to baptize? Into the name of. Do you notice he didn't say names? Do you catch that? It's subtle, but it's vitally important. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's talking about the unity of those three in one. He didn't say baptize into the names of, as if they're separate gods. Baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we don't baptize them in our name, in his name. And teach them what? To obey everything I've commanded you. Are you sure? Everything? Well, in order to understand what everything is, we have to read what Jesus taught. And that's tough. Because here's what tends to be promoted in secular society today outside of the walls of the church and actually even inside of some compromised churches today. It's just a variation of the truth but not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so what's perpetuated as the teaching of the church are just the good unoffending points. If you don't want to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see the red letters of Christ, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Three chapters. It's the great Sermon on the Mount. And to see what Jesus' actual words were just in those three chapters. Because when you actually read that in one setting, you realize that what Jesus said that we should be obeying is a lot to chew on. He talks about sexuality, sexual unions. He talks about divorce. He talks about hating versus loving. He talks about loving your enemies and actually praying for them and wishing for their best. He says that those who are blessed are the ones that are least likely to be blessed in the public I. He gives a lot of information. He says, even in Matthew 7, and this was life-altering for me when I read it and actually chewed on it for a while. In Matthew 7, he says, there are going to be those on that day, he's talking about judgment day when he returns, who say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do this in your name and feed the hungry? And da, 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 da. 
And he will look at them and say, depart from me for I never knew you. It's the Jesus meek and mild. No. Jesus was love and forgiving, extended mercy and grace. But I'm telling you, you really want to know what Jesus said we should obey? Read his words. Just read the red words. You'll see that Jesus wasn't just all gushy love and roses and lollipops. He wasn't mean, but he spoke the truth in love. Lastly, Jesus ascended and will return. Until then, the church is to be faithful. John R.W. Stott, great English theologian and pastor, penned these words. We need especially to remember that between the ascension and the second coming of Christ, the disappearance and the reappearance of Jesus, there are stretches, there stretches a period of unknown length which is to be filled with the church's worldwide spirit-empowered witness to him. We need to hear the implied message of the angels. You have seen him go, you will see him come. But between that going and coming, there must be another. The spirit must come and you must go into all the world for Christ. How's the church doing with the message of the gospel? Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that individuals need to be going door to door with tracks and beating on doors and those kind of things. But if you are going about your daily living as an imperative of the gospel of Christ, if people can't tell a difference between you and just the regular Joe on the street, by the way you live your life, the decisions you make, the joy expressed in circumstances, I mean, if they can't tell the difference between you and anybody else, then what difference are you making? It doesn't mean that you have to walk around with a cross on each shoulder or Bible verse on your shirt. You should be the living embodiment of the risen Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you treat people when you're behind the wheel of your car? That's a hard one, right? What do you say under your breath toward another person that nobody else can hear but you and the Lord? These are convicting statements for me too. Listen. How do you live your life behind closed doors? How do you live your life in the public eye? Are you living it in obedience to Christ's commands? And the question is, do you even know them? And if you don't, where are you being taught? I go to church here, Brandon. Well, that's <laughs> well. Then you should probably come on a little bit more. We'll go through some stuff together. My door is always open. You know, one of the things I love to talk about the most. You want to guess what it is? The Bible and the risen Word called Jesus, the Living Word. On uh, in twenty going on twenty three years of ministry, I've said. I would love to talk with you about the Bible. Why don't we go through a book of the Bible? My door's always open. You have anything you want to talk about with regard to Scripture? I'd love to do that. Let's talk about it. I've had a couple people maybe in 23 years. And I'm not saying I have all the answers. It's just something I love to talk about. I've dedicated my life to it. I really, really, really enjoy. It's where I feel like I worship God the most. He will return. He is faithful. But in the meantime, how are we living life? Let me conclude with this story. This, this is actual, actually a true statement um, that comes from um, an illustration that I read not too long ago. In, in 1983, I was alive then. Uh, some of you may not have been. But in 1983, the U.S. House of Representatives quietly, quietly dropped a 50-year-old tradition that they had had in the Senate or in the in the House at the time, the tradition involved the annual reading of George Washington's farewell address on the occasion of his birthday. So, uh, George Washington's birthday, the beginning of the session of the day in the House on the day of his birth, 
they would read his farewell address. And um, just in case you're curious of whether or not our founders, or at least George Washington, was a believer in Christ, read his farewell address. Just his farewell address. You don't have to, I mean, he's got a ton of other writings that you could read, but just his farewell address. If you, if you think he was a deist and believed that there was a God out there, but he didn't really interact with daily living of God's people, uh, not at all the case. Read his farewell address. Well, 50 years of tradition on his birthday with the reading of his farewell address to the House of Representatives at the United States Capitol ended in 1983. Democrat and Republican leaders decided it was useless to continue to read the lengthy address in an almost empty chamber. Because as the years went on, the House members were like, I don't want to hear that again. I mean, we do this every year. It's just tradition, blah, 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 right? It's too bad, a GOP aide said, but it's time for this to be consigned to the dustbin. Well, the Calgary Herald stated, in the past years... It was almost holy writ that the address must be read through war and storm for half a century. A member of each chamber was chosen to read the address publicly, declared the newspaper heading, nobody listens to Washington's farewell address anymore. (laughs) We are afraid that something parallel to this is taking place in the Christian church. Fewer And fewer believers are listening to Christ's farewell message. To his disciples, Christ gave clear instructions to go into all the nations with the gospel and to make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them. Michael Green concludes about the Great Commission by saying, that it is a very comprehensive commission. It leaves no stone unturned. It's simple. It's one of the things about Jesus and about God. They don't complicate matters. I said this this morning in a class I was helping to teach. When you see the waters getting muddied, you can almost bet that it's the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy that's causing confusion because he is the author and the master of confusion. But where there is clarity and truth, you know that Christ has been on the scene. When, when the teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? The enemy's trying to convolute the situation and to trip up Jesus. And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets hang on these two. Do you know what he just did? He gave a Reader's Digest condensed version. If you do these things, you'll complete the law. See, Jesus simplifies and clarifies. The enemy convolutes and confuses. So if you're feeling confused this morning, where are you seeking your truth? Are you actually looking into the Word of God? Are you looking at the Great Commission? Go make disciples, baptize and teach. That's what our mission statement's all about. Help people to know Christ intimately, grow in him continually, and go for him daily. That is the Great Commission. How do they know Christ intimately? A signification of that or or the, the image of that is baptism. You get baptized after you come to faith in Jesus Christ. We want you to know him intimately so you'll surrender your life to him. We want you to grow continually, to teach you to obey all the commands that he's given us. That's a part of the growing. And it doesn't stop Once you've read the Bible all the way through once. It's a continual process. Because we don't exhaustively know all truth. And thirdly, like the disciples were commissioned to go make disciples, we have yet been given as a new generation that commission to go daily make disciples. As our worship team comes forward, I guess that's the final point and question I want to leave with you is, how are you doing with the Great Commission? It's not just contingent on you. It's contingent on the body of Christ. But if you're a believer in Christ, you're a part of the body of Christ, and you have been commissioned. It's not just the clergy or those who have been called or ordained or that stand on a stage like this. It's not just the evangelists that go to different towns. It's for you. You're not, and I've said this multiple times, You will not stand on judgment day in front of Christ by my merits 
but by yours alone. You won't stand there and point back to any one person as being your stumbling block. They'll have to deal with that, but you are responsible for you. But you are also responsible with the commission that God has given you as a believer in Christ. How are you handling that? What are you doing with that? If you're not a believer in Christ today or you've got sin in your life that's unconfessed and unrepented of, it's time to let it go and to let God create within you a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. It's time to become a new creation, to allow the old to be gone and the new to come. See, what Jesus died for is something that we should be on fire for. And we have to remember it's not about us. It's always about him. Our altars are always open. You're welcome to come pray here. You can pray at home, wherever you are, listening to this message today. But why, why wait? <laughs> why, why not completely surrender everything now? Heavenly Father, you are good even when there's nothing good in me. You are faithful even when my faith is filled with doubts. You are holy even when I struggle with righteousness. But God, you didn't expect us to rely on ourselves to be saved. That's why Jesus came. Through his sacrifice on the cross, through his resurrection, he conquered sin and death as a once and for all perfect sacrifice. We need to look no further for salvation except to him. The way, the truth, and the life. Lord, remind us of that today. It's not convoluted. It's not complicated. It's complete surrender to your will and your ways through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. We love you and we praise you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.